Welcome back, my friends, to the D Rage Hate Podcast. I am Wilk from WilksWorld.com, and this is going to be episode 64 of our podcast. And this is definitely one you're not going to want to miss because we have a fantastic guest this week talking about unhyphenated America. You may not be familiar with unhyphenated America, but the message that Christopher Harris puts out is one you'll definitely want to hear. Now, we did not create the hate, but with your help, we can derate the hate. Just like I do with all my guests, they bring to the table fantastic ways and different information that helps us to make the world a better place. So what have you done today to make your life a better life? What have you done today to make the world a better place? It's all about bettering the world at one attitude at a time. And my guests and me here on the Derate the Hate podcast are all about doing just that. Christopher Harris is the executive director of Unhyphenated America, a nonprofit that accentuates the greatness of America and how it comes from our positive actions, not our racial identities. Chris is a staunch Christian constitutional conservative who has been a frequent guest on several shows on the Fox Network and CNN, in addition to numerous radio, television, and other media appearances from around the world. Christopher is a proud Air Force brat who spent his formative years overseas in Europe and Asia. Chris has an incredibly positive message, and I'm incredibly grateful to have him as a guest on this week's D-Rate the Hate podcast. All right, Chris Harris, thank you for joining the D-Rate the Hate podcast. I appreciate your time. Hey, thanks, Wolf. Thanks for having me. All right, so unhyphenated America. People know what the, the hyphen thing is, and it seems like a lot of people want to have their own, own identity or a certain group of people want to have their own identity in this country these days. Talk to me about what is your idea or what is the idea behind unhyphenated America, and how did that come about, Chris? Well, the term actually goes back to something said by uh, President Teddy Roosevelt, uh, and he was speaking uh, to the Knights of Columbus about 100 years ago, and he had to understand what was happening in America at that point. It was a a large influx of immigrants uh, from Europe, mainly, and uh, people were coming, but they were still, many of them were still holding on to their uh, European ethnicity, and they were referring to themselves as as uh, you know, Polish American or Hungarian American or whatever like that, uh, and you know, President Teddy Roosevelt was seeing that the conflicts that this might cause, and he was saying, "Listen, there's only one type of American. You know, that any anyone who decides to hyphenate their Americanness is not really an American, uh, because this, the way this land is set up, the way this nation is set up, it's an idea." Uh, and that we always say that if you understand, if you believe, if you embrace the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, then you're an American. And there's really no need for any prefix or suffix. You're just an American. And, uh, you know, that was something that was said well over 100 years ago. And it kind of faded away. Uh, most people were not hyphenating their American estate. They decided to embrace that singular term of being just an American um, but then in recent years, what you've seen is the left, the, the the political left, the ideological left has been trying to separate America once again by uh, by pushing that whole idea of hyphens. And so that's where our organization came into being is just recognizing this is taking place and saying we need to get rid of this. We need to, to go back to the simple idea that you can be an American. Oh, that's awesome. And, and I, I totally agree with that concept because. Anything that we do, and I talked in in episode 18 about 
certain groups of people who are bent on dividing us, wanting to put us, put labels on everybody and, and put us in a box, you know, put you in a box, put me in a box. Best way to keep us separated is, is to put us in little boxes, put labels on them and keep everybody separated, keep that divide alive. And, and, and I, I, you know, I, I like the, the concept and that's, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, you and I, obviously we, we recently connected on LinkedIn and, that was one of the things that that attracted me to to your profile right away was when I saw that unhyphenated American. I'm like, I got to talk to Chris. I got to find out more about this. So, you know, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the message that you're putting out there and, and how you're doing it. Now, going back to the LinkedIn, you've put a lot of stuff out there and I've read a lot of your stuff recently. You talk a lot about your your parents and your grandparents and your, your grandparents' parents and your lineage goes way back. Yeah. And when you're talking about it, you're talking about the idea that you couldn't imagine talking to your grandfather today, how being a, a black man and being oppressed in America today would, would relate or somehow surpass the oppression that he experienced back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Talk a little bit about that for me, would you, Chris? Yeah, so... My family became very interested in doing our genealogy uh, a few years ago, and we put a lot of work into it. And it's always it's, it's always interesting having to go and dig up that information because, in some ways, some cases, the people who know that information is passed on, right? So you get some bits and pieces, but we still were able to get a lot of information. And um, my on my in my direct paternal bloodline, my father's 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 father, so on and so forth. Uh, my three times great grandfather we found uh, was born on a plantation in Virginia in 1813. Uh, and the census information lists him as a mulatto, which basically means he was mixed. His father was white, you know, his mother was black. Now, his son, and here's the thing, we're, we're still looking to do the DNA test to be able to confirm who his father was. Uh, but once we're able to do, I mean, we, we have a pretty good idea who his father was, but, uh, and that bloodline actually goes back a long way. I mean, way, I mean, literally it goes back to like the eight hundreds. Uh, so you're talking about well over a thousand years of history. Um, but just if we go back to my three times great grandfather being born on a plantation in Virginia in 1813, and then his son uh, and my bloodline being born in New Orleans in 1865, and then my great grandfather, who I did meet, I met him back in 1988. I was 15 years old. I wish I had more understanding uh, of how important it was that I was getting a chance to have a conversation with my great grandfather. Uh, but yeah, he was born in Mississippi in 1813. He was one of, he was the youngest of nine kids. Um, and so, you know, all his, uh, so several of his siblings were born, uh, excuse me, he was born in 19, uh, 1909, right? I'm sorry. Several of his siblings were born in the 1800s and served in World War One. So when you go and look at that, <laughs> it, it kind of reminded me a few years back, well, because I had a conversation with a young lady named Emily. You know, don't need to disclose her last name, but and we were at a this event as Top Golf, in fact, in Alexandria, Virginia, and just I like to talk to people. This is what gave, this is what gives me insight, right? It's the exchange of ideas. And so, just having a conversation, and and you know, when she told me her last name, I always like to ask people. That's an interesting last name. Where, where does your family come from? 
uh, just to see what they know. And, and she was like, oh, now this, this, this is, gosh, this was eight years ago, give or take. Yeah. And she was maybe 24, 25 at that point. Right. So she was like, she said, oh, well, um, you know, my parents are from Russia, but I was born and raised here in the United States. I'm, I'm just an American. <laughs> right. That was her statement. My parents are from Russia, but I was born and raised here. I, I'm just an American. And it hit me. I was like, my goodness. See, I mean, I'm a Cold War baby, right? I don't, I don't know your age, Wilkes, we didn't discuss that, but I'm a Cold War baby. I was raised overseas in Germany in the 1980s at the height of the Cold War. Um, I've been to Berlin twice when the wall was still up. We took the train across uh, East Germany and had to deal with the East German border guards and all that. I've stood at the wall of Checkpoint Charlie and and. and because of what my father did as a federal agent, I was able, we were able to go up on the, on the, one of the uh, towers and I was able to look across the border of no man's land uh, and, and see, you know, the, the East German border guards walking around in there with the big German shepherds and machine guns and see the minefields and all that. And, and I was actually able to look through the binoculars and see an East German border guard looking at me through his binoculars. And, and I saw what socialism was like. And I know that, Soviet, the, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, that's what the USSR was, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, were our sworn enemy. I grew up knowing that the Russians, you know, the Reds were less than 100 miles away in the Fulda Gap, and that any moment the, the, the ball could go up, as they say, and thousands of Russian tanks could come streaming through there. And pretty much there's no way short of using tactical nuclear weapons that we had enough firepower to stop all the Russian tanks that would come through there. They were our hated enemy. And then the Cold War ended. And her parents immigrated to the United States of America. They had their daughter and she's just an American. But it's a beautiful yet, thing. I, whose family has been in the United States since before it was the United States, my bloodline. And that look, Wilkes, that doesn't even include the fact that my father's mother's bloodline, her my her my father's mother's father is uh Catawba Indian, 100 percent Catawba Indian. His family is his family name is listed on the uh the Catawba Indian reservation. So I'm one sixteenth. I actually qualify for Native American scholarships because I'm one sixteenth uh, Catawba Indian, you know. And, and so it's like you can look through all that, and you have all this mixture of people of different ethnicities from different national backgrounds and so on and so forth. But for some reason, people are pushing the idea that I should call myself an African American, but yet Emily gets to be just an American. How ridiculous does that sound, Wilkes? It's awfully ridiculous in my book, man. I I, I got to tell you, I, I you know, long before I ever started the Derate the Hate podcast and and started doing the stuff that I do online, I I used to make a joke because uh, I I'm almost all Dutch. I mean, you know, I've never been to the Netherlands, but I'm only a couple generations away from the Netherlands, and my family emigrated. Uh, over here in uh, either the late 1800s, early 1900s, went to uh, Northwest Iowa, and and here I am. But all I've ever known is is being an American, and nobody ever told me. Well, yeah, we got to you know you're either a European American or you're you're Dutch American or whatever. So I always always kind of made the joke that you know when people would 
stress that hyphenated American mentality, you know, I, I'd be like, well, does that mean I've got to call myself a Dutch American? You know, it's probably not a funny joke, but it was a joke, you know, because I, I just I, I, the, I thought the ridiculousness in that was just the irony in it was was ridiculous just because I was raised to believe we're all American. I mean, there is no you're right. America is an idea. And we were built on the ideas uh, of freedom, living, independent sovereignty uh, as as human beings, and, and being able to go as far as as our potential and our drive will take us. But then, you know, that that whole concept of putting each other in boxes never appealed to me, even as a kid. So, well, so if I can add something else, you know, I always like to, you know, whenever I do talks, interviews, or what have you, I always like to bring a historical perspective. That's me, right? I try to bring a biblical perspective as well as a historical perspective to help people understand, you know, everything that's happening, current events, right? And, and you can go back to the farewell address of the nation's first president, George Washington, right? And one of the things he pointed out was he uh, he cautioned against us engaging the petty squabbles of Europe. Because, I mean, that's what had happened is like, you know, we were, they were trying to draw us in, you know, the French, of course, who had helped us out in the Revolutionary War, uh, but there were the French and some of the people trying to get us to engage in, you know, the struggles in Europe. Well, I mean, you had a hundred years war that had recently taken place in Europe, right? I mean, the British and the French had been fighting each other forever, the Spanish and French and Spanish and British, and, you know, it's just, they'd all been fighting themselves just uh, on that continent forever, just like on the Asian continent, uh, the Chinese and the Mongols and the Japanese and Koreans had all been fighting each other, right? This is the normal, right? On the African continent, tribes engaged in tribal warfare. Uh, and so what George Washington was saying was to, to avoid engaging in the petty squabbles of Europe. Now, on a deeper level, that's trying to make the point clear that America is a new place. It's a place for a new start. Well, one of the things I said, I did a video a while back and I talked about, I uh, said, if your parent, if your ancestors came through Ellis Island, now, now listen, this is, this is a controversial thing. It might sound insulting to some people, but let's stop and think about this, right? See, because I know my ancestors were, were slaves. I don't believe in the whole crap, but we were we were kings and queens in Africa because that's just a stupid statement, right? I mean, how how many kings and queens were there really, right? Uh, my ancestors were sold into slavery by other Africans uh, and purchased by Europeans and brought across the the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, but yet, look at where we are today. Uh, but I, I pointed out that if your ancestors came through Ellis Island. In, in reality, they were, you know, some might call them, quote unquote, poor white trash. Right. And, and here's the reason why you're not going to pack up and leave the, another go to another country, let alone another continent where, you know, no one and you do not speak the language if your life doesn't kind of suck. You know, I was point out all the time, like, on, let's say on a scale of one to ten. If your life was an eight in Europe, uh, you know, I mean, that's a pretty doggone good life, right? Most people say hey, an eight out of 10 is a is good, right? Um, you're not going to pack up your family or go somewhere by yourself to another continent 
where you don't know anyone is don't speak the language just so you can improve your life from an eight to an 8.5, right? You know, it's like right, it, right. there has to be the, the opportunity for dramatic improvement. Your life was probably a two. You were a peasant. Uh, you were living off the land, uh, all the, the wealth. And still to this day, people have to have this in perspective, Wilkes, to this day. Two thirds, over two thirds of the wealth in Europe is inherited wealth. Uh There's very little new wealth created in Europe because the the systems in Europe are not in place and have never been in place to really allow uh, capitalism and free enterprise to flourish so that someone can pick themselves up by the proverbial bootstraps and become very wealthy. I mean, it has happened, don't get me wrong, it happens, it does happen, it is happening, but the system makes it a lot harder. But yet here in the United States, it's the inverse. Uh, over two thirds of the wealth, over two thirds of millionaires in the United States of America are self-made. They did not inherit any of their wealth. And so people uh, like maybe your ancestors, and forgive me, I'm once again not trying to be insulting, they probably left because life sucked back in the Netherlands. Absolutely. And they said, what do I have to lose? My life is a two. Maybe I can get to a six. Six is not bad. Six beats the pants off of a two. You know, but what they said to themselves is like, hey, you know what? Maybe I might be able to climb up to a six, but maybe my son or my grandson can climb up to a eight or nine or 10, you know, the proverbial 10 lifestyle. That's why European immigrants came here in droves and came through Ellis Island because their life sucked in Europe. That's such an important, an incredibly important point you make there, Chris, because I don't think people really put that into perspective. That was another thing that I wanted to compliment you on, the historical perspective and the way that you uh, lay things out for people is is incredible. And, and I got to thank you for that. And, and that point no, that you, you just make is, is, is phenomenal. It's phenomenal because it, it gives people... You know, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is I don't care if you think exactly like me. I just want you to think, you know, yes. and, and, and <laughs> I say the same thing. That's my favorite term. I just want com- you to think conversations like this really get people to think it's all about thinking. And, and which, you know, what you just said actually made me think of something else that I want to talk about. So I want to kind of change directions here a little bit. I, I was in the retail propane business for a lot of years and I dealt with a lot of independent gas station owners, let's say in, in Florida. Okay. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but a lot of your independent gas station owners and independent little grocery store and convenience stores uh, are run by foreign mm-hmm. owners. Okay. And whether they be from Africa or the middle East or wherever, but we often hear these days, politicians screaming from the rooftops, of systemic racism, systemic racism, you know, everybody's got to be a victim. You know, I talk about that perpetual victim mentality. But if if the United States is so systemically racist, how is it that so many foreigners come to the United States to better their lot in life, like you're talking about, become business owners and become incredibly successful in what they're doing? Talk about the difference in the average African coming from Africa over to the United States and becoming successful or the average Middle Eastern uh, you know, shop owner coming to the United States, why would they come to a country if this country was systemically racist? And then, better yet, why is it that the vast majority of them become far more successful 
than the average. And I'm just looking for your perspective here because I know personally what that victim mentality does to a person and how it keeps them down. Talk to me about your thoughts on that. How is it that those foreigners can come here and become more successful in a country that's supposed to supposedly systemically racist? Yeah, right. Great. Yeah. So what I'm telling, I, I, I tell stories, right? You know, I like to tell stories and to, because I'm always trying to add context and perspective. And uh, just this is how it made sense in my head. Throughout history, people who have lived in areas where there's like rivers, coastlines, and so on and so forth, have become far more advanced. Just society, the societies are far more advanced technologically and, and intellect and all that because they have the opportunity to interact with other people, right? Other people, groups, other tribes, and what have you. Now, there's also the you know, the risk of being invaded and conquered, right, when you're along there, as opposed to people who live up in these isolated mountain areas or other places that are hard to reach. They don't interact with too many other people. Uh, and so they, you know, they're, they're fairly stagnant. I feel like one of the great things about America and, and one of the things that helped to enrich me is I'm constantly interacting with people from different people groups. Um you know, you maybe have seen, and uh, if your listeners have not seen or heard, I've, I've been on Fox multiple times, right? Uh, Tucker Carlson's show, uh, uh, Fox and Friends, and, and I've been on CNN and, and you know, Turkish radio and television, Chinese television, Russian television. Um, usually when if I, uh, now, of course, like I've been doing it uh, remotely, doing it from my home, right? Uh, but before I would go into the studios and, and they would send a driver for me. Right. And here's the thing. Whenever they send a driver to pick you up, you know, just one of those things I would do uh, is just have a conversation with the driver. The drivers were always immigrants every single time. I don't think I ever once had a driver who was white. Right? It's just always immigrants. Uh, and I had conversations with them. I've actually kept in contact with them. Some of them were Pakistani, um, a couple of Pakistanis, a couple of Indians. Uh, one African guy from, uh, oh goodness, um, I was going to say Sierra Leone, but it's not, uh, it's escaping me right now, but um, from West African country. And, you know, I asked them questions, you know, like, hey, and, and I always ask the uh, immigrants these three questions. What was your view of America from afar, right? And then what was your view of America once you got here, and now that you've been here for a handful of you years, you know, whatever, what's your view of America? Without fail, they always said that they thought from afar, they thought America was just literally the, the streets were paved with gold, that that all you had to do was get here. Right. They literally thought all you got to do is get here, bend down and pick up bars of gold and money falls from the sky, right? This is what they're just like, if I can just get to America, right? And then especially because we're in the Washington DC metropolitan area, which is one of the most God awful expensive areas in the country to live in. I mean, it's the cost. I have a love hate relationship with the DC area. Um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, in car from Colorado, I uh, lived in Colorado for a long time, and so I still don't like heat and humidity, and the heat and humidity here is oppressive. They call it the swamp for a reason, folks, right? Um, and so I've never, I've never gotten used to the heat and humidity. The traffic is, cr is crazy, and the cost of living is ridiculous. Uh -huh. 
But outside of those three things, it's really actually a cool place to live, especially for somebody who likes history. But that's a sidebar, right? Um, they come to the United States and they come to one of the most expensive places and it immediately smacks them in the face that it's hard here, right? I mean, you have to work hard. The money is not just falling out of the sky. There's no gold. Uh, the streets are not paved with gold. It takes work, you know, to, to, to have a successful, a financially successful life here in America, right? And so once they overcome that shock, they all dig right in and they, they grab a shovel, they grab a pickaxe, what have you, and they start mining for gold because they know it's here. They know it's here and they know that nobody's going to try to stop them from getting their you know, gold mine just because they're from another country or they're from another continent or speak another language or ethnicity or what have you. They know that. And inevitably, like one of the gentlemen who picked me up two or three times, he was like, yeah, I was hoping that I could, you know, kind of do more. Right. He says, but you know what? My kids who were like, he said, when he came here, his kids were like, you know, four or five years old. He said, my, my oldest is in college and my youngest is about to go to college. And he's like, you know, I'm happy. And this guy was Pakistani. Uh-huh. And he was like, man, you know, my, my oldest is in college. My youngest is about to go. He said, so I'm driving this car, you know, and yeah, I mean, I, I thought maybe I might do more, but my kids are going to do so much better. The same story has been repeated by people from other ethnicities. And the problem I have with people who are of my ethnicity, who were born and raised in the United States as Black people in the United States of America for multiple generations, what we have forgotten, I'm Gen X, right? And especially millennials, they don't understand that that exact same mentality is what our ancestors had. They don't understand. And, and, you know, see, (laughs) look, I got a good night's sleep Wilkes. And so I'm, I'm wired, man. So you, you got me on, you got me on a, on a one, right? I'm on a run, man. So, you know, (laughs) if you need to cut me off, cut me off, but I'm just, I'm on a run with this. I'm enjoying the conversation, Chris. So you, you say what you got to say. So, History, right? Historical perspective. Most people don't even know how many Africans were brought here, uh, brought to the West as slaves. I mean, did, well, did, do you have any idea of the numbers? It's, it's, uh, I know, I don't know the number, but I do know that more Africans have now come to the United States voluntarily than ever came here on, on slave ships or, or were held in in slavery. So I do know that, uh, that that number has been surpassed. And and that's one of the reasons I asked the question. So go ahead. Tell me, I I don't know the actual number. So, okay. To give you an idea, there's in the metropolitan Houston area, there's over 100,000 Nigerians residing in the metropolitan Houston area right now. There's, uh, I want to say there's, I I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I know that there's tens of thousands of Ethiopians living in the metropolitan DC area right now, right? They all live in Alexandria, Virginia or Springfield. I'm sorry, not Springfield, uh, Silver Spring, uh, Maryland is where they they tend to be cloistered, right? But most people 
So as you said, yeah, there is way more than they ever brought over as slaves, right? But most people don't know the exact number. See, I like numbers because numbers paint pictures, right? For me, this is the way my mind is. <clears throat> I like it, you know, it's it, uh, quantitative and, and, you know, helps to, with the quality of the thought process. Uh, but you have to use numbers in their proper perspective. So here's the thing. Um, Skip Henry Louis Skip Gates, right, of B the, the Beer Summit fame, right, with President Obama, oh, the police acted stupidly. Um, mm -hmm. Outside of that incident, Skip Gates is a noted historian, right, a Harvard-educated historian, uh, historian. And he's also done the research, right? People need to understand slavery was a worldwide millennial-old institution. And, you know, people enslaved other people all the time. They enslaved their own all the time. But, you know, that's let's just stick to this specifically. Africans captured and sold other Africans into slavery and sold them to either Arabs who took slaves across the Trans-Saharan slave trade, which still goes on to this day, by the way, or they were sold to Europeans in the transatlantic slave trade. This was a business. People were cargo, right? Every business keeps logs and keeps track of their cargo. This information is available, right? Mm -hmm. So the information was mm -hmm. done and they found that roughly 12 and a half, roughly 12 million Africans were sold as slaves to Europeans to burn across the West. Well, guess what? Like any other business, right? And, and cargo, you lose some cargo. And we know the horrific ways uh, that my ancestors were treated during the dreaded Middle Passage. You know, when you've been dehumanized, you know, they, they throw the cargo overboard that's getting sick and stuff like that, right? Well, the long story short, 10 and a half million of those 12 men survived the dreaded Middle Passage and were brought to the West. Now, the question is, how many of those Africans, of those 10 and a half million Africans, ended up in the 13 colonies that would become the United States of America? That's the important question to ask. Well, once again, we have those numbers, Wilkes. Um, just a pop quiz for you, Wilkes, just, just to give me a good guess. Of the 10 and a half million who survived and were brought across the West, how many would you guess ended up in the 13 colonies? I'm going to go with about 20%, maybe 2 million, 2.5 million. That, that's a good fair guess. Plus, I kind of, you know, I, I, I kind of you know, helped you out a little bit. But you're still <laughs> way off, right? You're still way off, right? right? Over 5 million of them alone ended up in Brazil. Half of um, them ended up yeah. in Brazil, which, mm -hmm. by the way, Brazil is a Black nation. People don't know that, but if you look at the ethnicity of the people in Brazil, uh, they're either black or they have black and uh, European, black and native blood mixed, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what you have is, uh, you know, half of them ended up in that. And then my wife is of Panamanian heritage. Her parents, her ancestors came either, you know, her parents were born in, in Panama, right? My wife is black. Right? If you see my wife, you think, oh, she's just black. Well, she's black, but she's not African-American, right, for argument's mm -hmm. sake. Mm -hmm. She's first-generation American. Her parents immigrated from Panama. Her family, her parents' families, her dad's side of the family uh, was from Jamaica. Uh, her mom's side of the family was from Jamaica and Costa Rica, right? So here's the thing. Um, how did they end up there? 
they ended up there on the same slave ships that brought my ancestors. They just got off one stop early, Wilkes. Yeah. <laughs> that's what happened. Yeah. They got off a stop early. So of the other 5 million or so who, who brought across, who survived the dreaded Middle Passage, long story short, most of the rest of them ended up throughout the rest of Latin America, Colombia, Panama, Jamaica, uh, and excuse me, uh, um, French Guiana and all that, or they ended up in the Caribbean, right? Jamaica and uh, Haiti and uh, the island of Hispaniola, for example, uh, all throughout there, Cuba, only 388,000. Yes, 388,000 of the 10 and a half million ended up being slaves in the future, in the 13 colonies that would become the United States of America. Wow. And as I talked about in another article, in well, the video, I don't know if you saw the uh, the video that I did, um, you know, about Juneteenth. And, and, I did, yep. Yeah. And essentially, yeah, we started outlawing the slave trade and everything like that. And, and once the United States became a nation, I mean, slavery, only, and I'm not trying to minimize this, but once again, I'm trying to give people context and perspective. From a historical perspective, slavery only existed in the United States of America, I'm being very explicit and specific when I say that, as a nation, the United States of America, mm-hmm. not the British colonies, the mm-hmm. United States of America only had slavery for roughly 80 years. And we fought a bloody civil war to get rid of it. You know, and, and so this is the reality. Now, 1860. The 1860 census shows that there were roughly 4.4 million Blacks in America in 1860, right? And did you know that 10% of them were free Blacks? Yeah, I knew there was a lot. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly not as well-versed in history as you are, Chris, and, mm-hmm. and the information that you're providing is, is incredibly valuable, incredibly valuable. And I, I, I just don't think it's, well, I, I think we know that it's not taught in school because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the narrative and it doesn't keep people in that victim mentality. You know, I, I, I talk- teach real critical race theory, Wilkes. Right? See, what I'm teaching <laughs> right now is real <laughs> critical race theory. Yeah. No, I, it's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. I, well, you know, I've talked, uh, you know, I talked in episode uh, 52 about the reticular activating system and that perpetual victim mentality. Mm-hmm. I call it the perpetual victim mentality because people, once they, have it instilled in their brain that they are a victim that reticular activating system only lets people focus on so many things at any given time so once you've instilled in a in a young man's brain or a young person's brain that they are a victim they start to seek out points of yes. affirmation that they are a victim and, and then it becomes a perpetual cycle that that they don't they, they they no longer see the things to be grateful for they no longer see the promise that that is found within our country they are just constantly in that men- mindset that they're a victim. It's keeping people in chains. It, I mean, let's just face it. Keeping people in that victim mentality is the same way they've kept people down forever. And by, by convincing people are, they're a victim, they're convincing people to be a victim. Always be a victim. Yeah, that critical race theory. If you were teaching it, you know, there, there's important lessons to be learned about race. And I think everybody needs to be fully aware of their their roots, their racial background, their ethnic background, but to to make that the highlight in a person's life and the primary identifying factor of who they are, 
I, I think we just need to get back to being Americans, like you say, Chris. Well, Wilkes, you know, think about this. <clears throat> you and I both wear spectacles, right? You know, we we both need lenses to correct our eyesight. Um, and I always say, you know, I've I've kind of learned to to say eyesight as opposed to vision. Like I've, you know, my eyesight has been bad for 30 years now, right? Uh, so I've had to wear corrective lenses. The interesting thing is that these lenses don't change reality. They just change my perspective. They change the way uh, that my mind sees things. You know, my vision, my eyesight sucks, right? You know, I mean, I've thought about going to get LASIK and everything like that because, you know, the my the way the light reflects, reflects off of my, my pupils and cornea and all that, I forgot all the medical terms, um, it causes me to have poor eyesight. And if I'm walking around without my eyeglasses, it, it's, I don't see things very well. But it's amazing. And, and I, I use that analogy that I, I wrote another article talked about. I, I used to be that, right? I was a victim. What you said, uh, I wasn't raised to be a victim. That's the crazy thing. I was never raised to be a victim. But see, I had a few bad experiences. I wasn't very happy with where my life was going at that point in time. And, and this is why when you see me and I, I type out the, the controversial term, uh, the wretched subculture of African-Americanism. Why do I refer to it as that, right? Well, it's not just my shtick as unhyphenated America. It's because I've done the historical research and I understand that hyphenation, especially that of African-Americanism, is rooted and grounded in cultural Marxism. Why is cultural Marxism important to talk about? Well, because the, the economic theories, policies, what have you, that guided Karl Marx were pretty quickly debunked. They just were found out that it doesn't work. It just was wrong. I mean, he gave this long just diatribe in his and his is uh, and I forgot the name of his his seminal work, right? That it took him years to write, but it was just wrong, right? I mean, uh -huh. it, uh, uh -huh. it just economically did not work. But people who embraced it, who became believers of it. They found like, hey, I don't, well, this might not work from a dollars and cents economic standpoint, but we got to find a way to make this work. And they understood, they came to the realization that cultural Marxism was the way, uh, the, from affecting the culture is the way to, to really push Marxism, that you can't bring economic Marxism without first bringing cultural Marxism. Black people were one of the, the, the Petri dish, right, uh, the laboratory uh, of this terrible experiment. And one of the ways they've done that is to push that idea of the hyphenations, right? And it's had, it's wreaked havoc on the black community. And I know because see, when, when I had a few, I had a couple of bad experiences with white people. I wasn't happy in general where my life was going at that point. And I started being introduced to this way of thinking, this victim mindset uh, that cultural Marxism seeks to exploit. It, it, it focuses on the Marxist dialectic and it tries to pit uh, old against young, rich against poor, male against female, black against white, trying to take these things and, and, and it, it, it keeps poking at it and inflaming it. And so you take someone like myself, who even though I wasn't raised to think this way, 
you know, I started thinking and feeling this way. And essentially, it was like me walking around without my glasses. My vision was all whacked out, right? You know, it's like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I can walk around without my glasses, right? But I can't see detail, right? It's like, you know, right. it's like I miss a lot of things. Um, you know, if, if my glasses fall too far away from me in the morning or whatever like that, uh, they might blend into the surrounding and I can't find them. You, have, you know, you got to do the blind reach around trying to grab your glasses or whatever. Kind like, like that. Velma on Scooby-Doo. Exactly. <laughs> you can't see them. You miss a lot of things. And that's what cultural Marxism does. It skews your vision. It's like me walking around without my glasses. And then once, you know, thank God. I mean, oh, oh my God, I, I, I am a Christian. Because I, I I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and and I I had a you know not trying to put myself on that level, but to kind of a, meet Jesus on the road to Damascus experience like Saul of Tarsus had uh, before he became Paul. Uh, that's the way I would kind of relate to myself. It's like man, I had that kind of experience, and it was really he was blinded for multiple days. Well, and then he got his eyesight back. Uh, but for me, it was like getting my glasses. It's like, oh, my God, I'm seeing things so much clearer now. And I understand how the left has tried to sow those seeds. They try to get me to hate you for no other reason than you have less melanin than me. They try to get me to believe that you hate me just because of my melanin that you don't know me, I haven't done anything to you or whatever like that, but they try to get you and I to believe that we should inherently dislike each other because they promote this idea of race. But as a Christian, as you always say, I said, I'm a Christian constitutional conservative. As a Christian, I trust the word of God. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. And when you trust that, you realize that there is only one race of human beings, that uh -huh. from one blood, God created all mankind. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. And of course, we're all descendants of Noah and his three sons who survived the flood. I, I am a, that's how I believe. And science is back, you know, the left likes to talk about trust the science. They don't trust the science, right? Because no. they think that a male can be a female just because he feels like it, right? <laughs> also, uh, they trust the science. They trust the scientists that they agree with, and that's what they go with. And yeah. So yeah, that, that's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, if you and I share the same values, then Wilkes, you're my brother, especially if you believe in Jesus Christ. We're brothers in Christ. Yep, absolutely right. I it, I think it's such a shame that so many people buy into and, and are, are sold into this mindset of division. And that's one of the reasons that I started this podcast and, and getting the opportunity to speak with you know, with folks uh, that that share the values that I do, like you and I are having this conversation, Chris, this conversation could go on for hours, I'm sure. You and I have more in common than, uh, than we have not in common. And, mm -hmm. and we have a common mission, and that common mission is to better the world. And the only way that we can do that is to make sure that people are not falling into that victim mindset. They have the clear vision, and they have that clear like you were talking about with your glasses, that's perfect analogy. It, you know, they help your eyesight. They help you to see the things clearly. And, and there's too many people right now that that they they fall into and, and they're encapsulated by that division mentality because there's so many people 
that make it out to be the way that we need to go. You and I have different skin colors, so I must dislike you. You know, I, I don't, uh, I don't agree with that. That's why I started the D rate day podcast is because there's this, this idea out there that, that people must be divided. And, and you know, that, you know, as well as I do, Chris, that the reason that they try to divide us is because they can, they can conquer us that way. They can keep us in check. If, if you hate me and I hate you, uh, we'll, we'll never get ahead because we're stronger together. You and I are stronger together. We're brothers in Christ. I, I totally believe in uh, in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, just like you do. And I, and I don't ever foresee uh, a way that I could let some politician or some news agency or some big tech agency to keep us apart. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. There's so many things that are deep about that. And, and yeah, like I said, I could go on and on. We could talk for hours about this. You know, but but the bigger issue is, what are we going to do going forward, right? What, why they're trying to sow the seeds of division? The left is very good at that, right? Mm-hmm. I, I like. I've been reading a great book. I've actually finished reading one. I'm reading a second one about storytelling, right? We on the right suck at storytelling. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, now, now here's the thing. There's a difference between telling a story versus telling the story. See, here's the interesting thing is that a story doesn't even have to have any fact in it. It can be fantastical. It can be pure fiction. But if it's a great story, throughout history, people have got together and sat by campfires. And somebody who's been a great storyteller has been able to shape cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Because a narrative can be created and people, they, they connect with a story and they'll repeat that story to their family, their children, ancestors, whatever like that. And that story over time can be taught like it's truth, even though it's purely fiction. Mm-hmm. That's the power of a story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What we have as Christian constitutional conservatives, we have the story. See, the story is fact-based, right? It's it's history, the real true history of human nature and human behavior in context, in its proper uh, um, perspective. That's what we have as Christian constitutional, uh, constitutional conservatives on the right. We have the story. But Wilkes, we suck at telling the story mm-hmm. because what we do is we just spit the facts out. Mm-hmm. I'm guilty of it, right? Uh, yeah, we're all guilty of it. We have to get better at telling the story. It, we, yep. it, it's, we have a compelling story to share because it's the story. Absolutely right. I challenge you and I challenge anyone who's listening who considers themselves to be a Christian, a constitutional conservative, a libertarian. I don't care if you call yourself a libertarian or whatever. Like that. Do you want to preserve the, the freedoms and liberties of the Constitution? Are you a Christian? Then fine. We're in the same accord. I don't care if you call yourself a libertarian or not. Right. That's, but like we have the story to tell, but we have to get better at telling the story. And it's that's facts in context. 
in a compelling way, mm-hmm. in, in a way that grips your humanity, in a way that relates to you. See, we we unfortunately we have a habit of just you know throwing a a, a fact bomb, you know, a, a fact grenade into a room and feel like, hey, this is gonna solve the problem. Well, no, it doesn't, right? <laughs> this is gonna stick. <laughs> yeah, this is gonna and it stick. just doesn't. It yep. doesn't stick because we haven't human beings are emotional creatures. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. We we have to connect with human beings on an emotional level and tell the story. We don't have to listen. We we never have to make up lies. I really hate when I see anybody on the right um, telling falsehoods. It's absolutely unnecessary. Unnecessary. I agree. Now, it doesn't mean that everything that we say, and I always put it like this. If let's say there's some conflict between me and another person, I'm not positioning myself as being a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. But Wilkes, there's what I always feel that if the entire story is told in its proper context, I'm not saying that I'm going to come out squeaky clean, but I'm not going to come out as the bad guy because I I live my life in such a way that, you know, I don't violate the unable rights of my fellow man. I show respect uh, in general to my fellow man. I'm not saying I don't make mistakes. You know, I don't do things maliciously. But when the story is told in context, somebody might say, well, Chris, yeah, you still, you're still going to get a smack on the hand for maybe you should have, could have, would have done this differently. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's true. I probably could have done this differently or whatever like that, but I'm not going to be the bad guy. And that's who we are on the right. Mm-hmm. Are we perfect? No. You see me say this, perfection is not a requirement for greatness. America is great. See what the left does, Wilkes, they say this is this is the, the childish way of thinking that the left does. They say, well, America is not perfect, so it can't be good. And if it's not good, it certainly can't be great. That's their thought process mm-hmm. because they compare yeah, it's, it's totally backwards, totally to backwards. Utopia. Yep. Utopia is nowhere. It doesn't exist. It doesn't so when exist. you hear them comparing us, who are they comparing us to? They're comparing America to some fictional idea, and they can't present some real place that has perfection. And here's the thing. Remember, why did your ancestors leave the Netherlands? Because life oh. sucked. Yeah. Because life from that two to a six, like we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> because if this other place that you're talking about was con- is really so much better, you would leave this sucky place called the United States of America so you could get to that six, eight, nine. Matter of fact, this place, that other place that you keep talking about is a 10. Oh, my God, there would be a flood of people leaving this crappy two out of 10 place to go to that place that's a 10, but it doesn't exist. Well, hey, Chris, I, I got to. I got to tell you, this this has been an incredible conversation, and I know for a fact that you and I could we could sit here for hours and just talk and talk and talk. And, and I tell you what, you have an you have such an important message. Whatever we can do to help each other to combat that victim mentality, combat that division, combat those labels that put that people put upon us, I, I think we need to do it. And and uh, I certainly be reaching out to you again, Chris, and and I hope you reach out to me and. And uh, we'll definitely do this again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And, and I hope I didn't wear your listeners out too much. So. <laughs> no, no. All good. Uh, 
all good material, all good points. And, and, uh, I tell you what, you're a treasure and, and I greatly appreciate your time, Chris. All right. Thank you. And please have your listeners go to www.unhyphenatedamerica.org. Please go like subscribe because the social media platforms are definitely suppressing our message. Uh, I've been kicked off of Facebook so many times and I was kicked off of LinkedIn once, twice uh, also. So yeah, please go visit, like, subscribe, and share. I appreciate that, Wilkes. Thank you for the platform. Very good, Chris. And we will definitely talk again. I appreciate it, my friend. Take care. Take care. Friends, there we have so much value from another fantastic guest on the Derate the Hate podcast. One thing that I, I really want you to do and I really want you to understand is, is that this is the type of message that needs to get out there. This is the type of message that there's certain people out there that they just don't want you to believe that this message exists, but it does. And uh, people like Christopher Harris are doing phenomenal things uh, about spreading that message. But like he said right there at the end, there are media platforms that do not want this message put out there. So share it with your friends. Visit unhyphenatedamerica.org. Shoot Chris a message. Tell him you heard him about him on the D-Rate the Hate podcast. Tell him how much Wilk appreciates him being here. So with that, I will say, what have you done today? to make your life a better life? What have you done today to make the world a better place? Chris Harris is doing great things to make the world a better place. That's what we're here to do, bettering the world one attitude at a time. Get out there, be kind to one another, be grateful for everything that you've got, and remember, it's up to you to make each and every day the day that you want it to be. I am Wilk from Wilksworld.com. Email me, Wilk at Wilksworld.com. Check us out wherever you get your audio. Share us with your friend. Leave us some feedback. Do all you got to do to get the message out there because it's so important in making the world a better place. That I'm going to back on out of here. Catch you next week.